credit unions really have to understand clearly what their strategic vision is. And they have to also understand, regardless of where the world is going, how will their strategic vision position them to, to, to sustain success regardless of you know, what's coming. Right. A big part of that is understanding the role data and technology are going to play in your strategic vision. And I think that we tend to look at technology and data as, you know, an IT thing like we talked about before. We really need to start, you know, building technical competency within all the different business units. It needs to become an enterprise uh, competency in order for us to really drive it forward at the speed that our members expect. And then lastly, I think that, um, you know, as we're building these these visions and these roadmaps, um, we, we also have to be really careful not to trip over ourselves, right? We need to dream big. We need to expect big things out of our companies and what we're able to deliver to our members. Um, but we also have to make sure that we set our expectations and our roadmapping properly so that we execute small. So dream big, but, you know, execute small. <laughs>
how my agents had to pop between so many different systems and totally. how we had all this data. And it was like, you know, I, I felt you know powerless to use all this data that we had to actually make the experiences of our members better. You, you um, may have created an island there at BCU, but I will tell you from being out in the field, it's still that way a lot of places. You know, there's a lot yeah, of swivel chair. For sure. Well, and that was the thing, Fred, is that, you know, I've come, I've come into different roles since that time, but here I am 20 years on, or at the time, 15 years on, and it was like, wow, those problems still persist. You know, we haven't gotten a lot further. So that was, you know, that was a really big part of, um, you know, kind of starting up a data a data practice at BCU, but also really looking hard for something that would help us connect systems. You know, we really realized the importance of data connectivity to actually powering these modern experiences that our members really, really want. So if we were ever going to do that, we were going to need something like a Salesforce to build in that could leverage all the data we have to create great experiences. And that's what we've been doing. That's fantastic. You mentioned a lot of different systems in, involved in that uh, you know, customer service experience. I'm sure that's probably a part of it, but I, I don't want to answer for you. Uh, what have been some of the biggest challenges or roadblocks in implementing Salesforce and how did you overcome them? Well, I mean, hey, you know, change is hard, right? And I think for a lot of people that I've talked to, they get frustrated because they, they, they're putting in Salesforce or something like it and they feel like, well, I'm, you know, I'm buying a, you know, just a, a fully packed, fully built out solution. But really what we're, what we were doing and we, we realized that at the time was, you know, we're completely shifting how BCU thinks about technology and about building solutions, right? I'll never forget when we got our, our, our Salesforce, you know, we signed the contracts and everything got turned on and I got my login and I'm like, cool. And I logged in and I'm like, it's a blank screen. <laughs> <You know? laughs> now what? Where's all the cool stuff, right? So Salesforce is super powerful. It's like an erector set, right? But it is what you make it. And you know, BCU, I mean, like we've been really, really successful over the years, doing a lot of awesome things, having a lot of great success. And a lot of that lied with our ability to kind of contort ourselves, you know, with all with with a lot of kind of antiquated backend systems that don't talk to each other to kind of force them to do what we wanted them to do. You know, it was kind of like we, we were like the, the MacGyver credit union, <laughs> you know, where we're, you take a piece of string and bubble gum and a nine volt battery and you, you know, you build a atomic bomb or something. And so that's what we're really good at doing. And that's really, really different from what's like, okay, you don't have to, you don't have to like maneuver around all this antiquated technology. You've got all the tools you need, build something correctly, design an, an experience that is, you know, really powerful and lasting and impactful. That's a totally different way of thinking rather than just saying, we got to figure out how to solve this problem with, you know, string and bubblegum. So that's been really, really difficult actually for us is, you know, and I guess you could call it, it change management, but it's also kind of design management and how we approach problem solving um, to really optimize awesome modern experiences instead of just trying to string a bunch of antiquated things together. Wow. You've, you've definitely, John, gone like soup to nuts, so to speak, right? The full gamut of things. Reflecting back, what tips do you have for other credit unions just starting their journey with Salesforce? Well, I mean, like I just said, I think Salesforce is a platform, you know, you use it to build things. Um, so I think, 
I was just talking with a credit union yesterday at an event and, um, you know, they, they had gotten Salesforce and they were a little bit disappointed with it, but they had dreamed really, really small. Like they bought it for one specific thing that didn't really do a whole lot. And I think if you dream really small with Salesforce, you're probably going to be disappointed. You know what I mean? I think you need to, you know, if you dream too big, you're also going to stall out too, right? Because it's so <laughs> expensive. So, you know, I think when you start your journey with Salesforce, you got to find that right balance, right? You need to be clear about what you want to accomplish with it. And then you need to execute. I think also something that, that we took seriously out of the gate, and I think it really, you know, worked out well for us is that we realized that the power of Salesforce is the data that you're able to put into it and get out of it, right? So you can't skimp on data. You know, we right out of the gates, we're like, there's going to be, you know, these systems that we need to have talking to Salesforce in real time if it's ever going to mm -hmm. drive any value for us. Um, so don't skimp on, on the data you feed into it. Um, I think also, and this maybe is something that scares people away from a big platform like this, but you don't want to underestimate the resources you're going to need to actually utilize it, right? I mean, you know, th this is something that you start with. And we, we did this, you know, we had a very clear vision of what we wanted to do and what we justified that we were going to do with Salesforce. But we weren't even, you know, past step one of putting that in place before people were like, oh, wait a minute, we could do this. Oh, wait a minute, we could use it over here. Oh, wait a minute, we can... Um, and suddenly, you know, if you, if you chase down all of those things, you become very overwhelmed. So I think you need to find that balance. What is it specifically that you're trying to solve for today? But you also have to have that longer term vision for Salesforce. Um, otherwise, you know, you're, you're, you're going to get off track. I think especially point number two, you know, pulling the, pulling the data in from all those different sources, like how often are people coming up short? came across an article recently posted on salesforce.com indicated that in 2023, only like 29% of customer data is pushed into Salesforce. Mm -hmm. So really, really wise words. Let me ask you this. How has your team and culture evolved through this digital transformation? What adjustments have been critical? Anything come to mind? Well, I, you know, the, the first thing that comes to mind, honestly, is that I think in the past we had, it's a mindset really, right? So in the past we had this mindset that, oh, this has to do with data or this has to do with tech. Oh, that that's IT, right? Yeah. And whereas today, you know, where we're at and we're trying to continue to push down this route is that data and technology are key business capabilities. And, you know, not just that, that, that you use tech and data in business, but I think, you know, actually developing technology and data solutions within the business is critically important to how your business is going to be designed and operate and succeed. So, you know, when, you know, for us anyways, when we stood up our data practice, when we stood up our Salesforce practice, we didn't do it in IT. And it wasn't because IT couldn't do it. You know, we have a fantastic IT team. But we wanted to make it clear from the get-go that we're doing these things for business reasons to accomplish business aims and to drive business value. And for that reason, you know, we wanted to make sure it was it was business-led. So I think that was 
you know, that's a, that's been a big change that, that we've had to work through and it, people have really embraced it. You know, we have some really talented leaders, you know, in lending and in deposits and in, you know, um, you know, business development in all aspects, and they're all becoming smarter about the data that they have and understanding their data better and how it can be used to drive them forward as well as technology, including Salesforce. So yeah, as you, I would say, yeah. as you know, John, I I've worked with a lot of clients and, and you guys as well, but I, it's in my experience, I think that you and BCU has done one of the better jobs I've seen in getting business leaders to embrace leveraging data and insights. And I'm kind of curious, like what has been, your secret sauce? You know, how did you get these old school uh, credit union executives to really embrace data and, and really buy into the program? Um, tenacity, <laughs> I think. <laughs> I mean, you know what? I think that because, you know, I didn't come from technology, really. I, I came from, you know, marketing and sales and service. I came from the business side of things. Um, so I was really intentional about when we were, when we were talking about these technologies and what they can do. I'm not talking in technical terms. I'm talking in business terms. You know, I'm talking in terms of creating real value that are going to help us achieve our, our, our vision for what we want to do with our, our organization and how we want to serve our members. So I think that's a really big part of it. The other thing was, um, you know, you, you just have to find who your champions are in the organization, like people that get it. You know, mm -hmm. you got to figure out who those folks are that early on they're, they, they, they're grasping the vision that you're playing, that you're, you're, you're laying out there. And I think, and then you work with them to create small successes and then you build those small successes into bigger successes and you just keep kind of adding on that way. And that's the way we've been successful. Even the most, you know, the most supportive people in the business had doubts early on in, in our Salesforce journey where it was like, oh, wow, this is really a big deal. And this is this can be difficult. And this is a lot of work. And this is a different way of thinking. Um, but credit to, to my colleagues um, who had the, the vision themselves to persevere through some of those tough points mm -hmm. um, and get to the get to the goal, you know, get to the <laughs> to the value delivery that we all dreamed of. But you know, it would be foolhardy to think that you're going to get there without some without some doubt, without some difficulty. So those are the two things: finding people, you know, talking in business terms, finding who your 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 advocates and your um, you know the the folks who are going to advocate for this vision within the organization, and then working with them to build small successes, and then making sure everybody knows about those small successes. <laughs> I, I love it. And, you know, just to build on that a little bit, like, let's get to the so what. So what are those successes? How is Salesforce really enabled and, you know, together with the data program to better understand and serve your members? You know, what insights has it provided and, and how is that really being leveraged by the business? You know, I mean, there, there there's many, many ways that, that uh, you know, we've used it to better understand our business and our members you know, maybe the biggest impact that it had, and it had this like, like straight away was um, moving, you know, we were always focused on, you know, transactions and, um, you know, new engagements with members start with applications, you know, mm -hmm. we didn't, we weren't really a lead gathering, lead managing company, we didn't have a CRM, you know, leads were, you know, scraps of paper or, you know, Excel files that, you know, never get opened or, <laughs> um, and they weren't really managed. 
And from our member perspective, what that means is that, hey, you, you're not getting on my journey with me until I get to the point where I'm ready to start having you pull credit reports and all this kind of stuff. Well, you know, now as we started to realize that, holy cow, you know, there's all kinds of opportunities here for us to gather leads, which isn't just saying, well, we're going we're gonna to be hardcore selling our members. No, we look at, at it as these leads are giving us insights. They're giving us clues to the journeys that our members are on already, right? And before we weren't picking up on those clues and it's like, now we are. So that was huge for our management of, of sales across BCU was like, now we're gonna start collecting and managing leads and it's different than just mm -hmm. you know trying to have you know good pull through on, on consumer loan applications, for example. So that, that was a huge part of how we um, were able to, to to learn more about our members. I think another thing would be about, um, we, we've always, we, we, not always, but for the last you know several years, we've had a different platform that we use, um, not as extensive or powerful as Salesforce, but something that we were able to, to pull together all the balances from all the different you know, back office systems. Mm -hmm. So that at least from an account standpoint, when a member's in front of you or you're on the phone with them, you have a consolidated look of all their relationships with you. But what's really cool now, and you know, we're, we're, we're still on this journey ourselves, but we're now roping in, okay, you not only see what all their accounts are and what their transactions are in Salesforce, but now you can see, well, what marketing have they received? How have they, you know, how have they interacted with that marketing? And just as important, maybe more important, what interactions have they had across channels, right? And what, where, where are those interactions at, you know? So having visibility into our, our members, you know, across all these different channels and points of their journey um, has really kind of broadened our perspective of how we see a member that's standing before us today. I think that's fantastic. And I, I love that vision of really eliminating those data silos and bringing in, to your point, not just transactions, not just balances, but marketing engagement and, you know, branch engagement and all these other things. I know that one of the things that I frequently struggle with when I work with clients is like helping them identify, you know, all those data silos, right? You know, you mentioned before in the answer, you know, lead tracking wasn't really done, but it, it probably was, right? Like people had their little Excel sheets and they had their little notebooks and they had their little, you know, workarounds and that type of thing I'm sure exists all over the organization. So how did you like succeed in getting people to, you know, trust and kind of hand over their little shadow solutions so you could get to that level of transparency? Well, for starters, we didn't ask. I mean, <laughs> right. So, you know, it, I, I, I credit our, our, our president, you know, who made it very clear early on. It's just like, hey, we're we're going with we're making a big investment in moving down this path with Salesforce. And this is how we are going to operate, you know you know, from a sales standpoint, from a service standpoint. Um, and quite frankly, I'll tell you, yeah, there were little, you know, shadow kind of lead management capabilities across the organization, but they were really small and really ineffective. Mm -hmm. So I was also, Fred, really heavily selling on the idea that there is all this opportunity out there. You all have goals in your, you know, different, you know, business units and, and, and groups different branches, et cetera. You guys all have goals and there's all this untapped opportunity to help our members that we've never had visibility to before. 
but you just you need to commit some resources to actually tapping in uh, to and, and understanding what leads you have before you and then actually figuring out how to approach those members. And, you know, one by one, as they started to see, oh, wait a minute, I'm falling behind in my goals, maybe a little bit. I'm going to start calling on more of those leads. It becomes a, I mean, it starts to really feed itself because they start to realize, wow, without these leads, I wouldn't be able to, you know, hit these new goals that I'm getting. So, you know, we really, it, it ended up happening, I think, not because I told people it had to happen or even because our president, for that matter, told it. But really, because they started seeing the results in their business, you know, oh, wow, we now have visibility to see which leads turned into actual applications, which turned into actual booked product. Um, and it, there was a bit of an eye opening where we said, wow, there's a you know, it's it's still it's a relatively you know small percentage by the nature of leads. Mm-hmm. But it's a meaningful number when you take a look at how much of it ended up with with actual engagements with members. So um, I think when people have started to see that, wow, this is actually fuel for what I'm trying to do, um, they all they, they started one by one to jump on board. That's fantastic. I love that. It's it's you know a little bit of stick, but a lot of carrot, a lot of like, here's what's in it for you and and seeing those successes and seeing that build. I and I don't say this in a way to to say that like designing intentional positive user experience is not important because it is. But I think some of the best like user experience work that can be done is just designing a process that's going to give, you know, great results and, and give people a reason to to want to engage with the system. So I, I love that. So Fred, I've got to ask. Oh, go ahead. Go yeah, ahead. The, you know, as I'm thinking back on it and there was there was something that I, I, I felt I had to do. <laughs> But it made me very, very unpopular for a while. I don't know. Maybe I'm still very unpopular, but it it was. Well, you're popular here. You're popular here. I'm amongst friends. This is good. Um, But, you know, across, you know, have all the different branches and all the different call centers, et cetera, that we're all utilizing and managing leads. What I started doing is I started pulling together a dashboard in Salesforce that had all the who's doing a good job and who's not. Um, (laughs) And I started circulating that on a weekly basis to, um, you know, the, the senior leadership team. And so it, 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 that's the other thing about, you know, working with a system like Salesforce is that you can't, you can't deny the data. You know, it's now tracking what you're doing <laughs> with all the opportunities and leads that you're getting. So there were those people who you could see, wow, they're, they're calling on, you know, 95% of their leads. And this group over here is calling on only 3% of their leads. What's going on? So there was some, you know, uh, <laughs> intentional pressure that was placed on people <laughs> simply by giving visibility to what was actually happening. Happening, And I think that in the end, they're all thankful for it because they all, you know, now are, are on board and are, are seeing the value in their business results of pursuing those leads. No, I love that. I love that uh, you know, healthy competition and, and a little bit of of, of exposure and, and shining a light on on stuff like that. And I'm sure it probably opened up a lot of cases where the reason wasn't that necessarily that people were resistant, but that people just needed to understand how to use the system better or they had questions or that it was just a new process. And so it yeah. it really helps make sure that you've got the the right support that users need when they're when they're stepping into a new system and a new process. Um I got to ask because it's it's 2023 and literally everybody's talking about it uh, and you run the data program. So I'm sure you've been giving it a lot of thought, but what are you thinking? What's BCU thinking about how to leverage 
you know, all the progress that's been made lately in AI, LLMs and, and kind of other, you know, sophisticated predictive models, you know, are you finding a lot of impactful use cases? And, and what are you guys thinking from that perspective? Yeah, I, you know, I think we have high hopes for, you know, how that's going to impact our business. But I, you know, the initial, you know, because this, this really did come on pretty fast, right? And it was like this massive step forward in a very short period of time. Yep. So I think we were no different than everybody else where our first reaction was, oh no, <laughs> how do we protect ourselves from this? You know, um, how do we keep our employees from putting member numbers into chat <laughs> GPT? <laughs> um, and I think that, you know, so we had the same freak out everybody else did is just like, you know, what, how could this, you know, negatively impact our business? Um, and we, we did, you know, we, we, we built, you know, all the acceptable use, you know, standards and we've, you know, you know, worked with our employees to make sure they understand how to use this technology safely. Um, so we're past the freak out point and we're now really trying to gather as much information as we can to understand how this, you know, what are going to be the early use cases that, that, you know, large language models are going to, are really going to have a meaningful, valuable impact on BCU. And that's the thing, new technology comes out and we're like, oh, we got to be thinking about what it's going to do for us five years from now. I've been very clear with our management team that I think this is going to change how we operate, at least to a certain degree within the next 12 months. You know, this is going to, it's going to happen pretty quickly. Totally. Um, I don't necessarily see us building any, any custom, um, you know, uh, applications for these, these models in the near term. What I see us really starting to do is you know we're, we're we we use Microsoft to a large extent on the on mm -hmm. the technical and on the data side. We use Salesforce to a large extent on the sales service and marketing side. And both of those platforms and those companies are, I think, doing a pretty amazing job at very quickly finding ways to um, you know kind of embed capabilities that anyone can use into existing tools that we're already using. I think that's where we're really going to start to see near-term value is just by leveraging, you know, those tools, you know, for example, um, you know, some of the ways that Microsoft is building, um, you know, the open AI technology into Power BI, I think is going to really help us push forward the, you know, the whole notion of, of um, analytic self-service and data self-service big time. When you start to allow people to try and seek insights using the English language instead of Python, <laughs> suddenly, you know, there is an opportunity for way more people to, to start to interact with your data in a, in a very meaningful way. And on the Salesforce side of things, you know, we're a user of uh, knowledge, you know, for the knowledge base. So we have hundreds and yeah. hundreds of articles that talk about our, you know, they're both internal articles and member facing articles, but they talk about our, our processes and our policies and, and, you know, so, you know, when, when we have the ability for these powerful tools to go through and say, okay, train yourself and consume, you know, these hundreds of different, you know, policies and, 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 um, and processes, now suddenly it becomes a really powerful tool, if, you know, internally, but also eventually externally for members for more conversational support, you know, hey, what's, you know, what's the, you know, what's our policy about such and such or how, you know, you know, how do I, you know, how do I process, you know, this type of a request and having it come back to you very quickly with a very meaningful BCU specific answer. That's huge. So long winded answer to your question, Fred, but really in the near term, 
I see us leveraging, you know, the tools we're already using um, within these platforms that have just been kind of juiced with uh, with this new technology. And I think it's it's going to have a meaningful impact to how we work. I love that approach. And I've actually been following some of the stories, Microsoft in particular, how they're baking in, you know, generative AI across a number of different products. Uh, I think actually their stock prices are surging big time around some of that news and some of those developments. So be interesting to see that story continue to unfold. And I don't know, Dane, John, both of you, because uh, I probably a lot of our audience is not as familiar with you know what Microsoft is doing in Power BI. Like I don't know if we want to you know just dig, dig into that a little bit. But I'm curious because I don't know what Microsoft is doing with Power BI right now. Well, I think what you know what you're seeing them do is they they're they're essentially and they're branding it Copilot, and it's basically they are building this AI uh, powered you know capability into all their different you know uh, Office products, uh, into GitHub, into Windows itself, so that you can start interacting with all of their different tools in a more natural and conversational way. So for example, Fred, you know, they, they'll give you the, and you go out and, you know, any of your listeners can go onto YouTube and there's just, you know, dozens and dozens of, of, of these, but, you know, an example would be taking a, you know, a, a, you know, 10 page paper or summary paper that was done on, on a particular opportunity and then feeding that in and saying, Hey, give me a, a three slide, you know, PowerPoint deck to summarize this. And it'll it'll you know read through your ten page document and it'll it'll come up with here here's a, a PowerPoint you know presentation for you to give a summary of this for. Which I, is it's, it sounds like as a consultant I might be out of a job. So just kidding. <laughs> yeah. Well. Yeah. Speaking of you know Microsoft embedding and not to not to continue down this vein, but I'm actually you know for those that are maybe looking for like kind of freebie transformers to to play with, experiment with, or use day in and day out for, for work. Um, I'm really fond of Bing. I'm really impressed with Bing. It does not have the date restrictions that I experience in chat GPT. Um, I, I understand it to be based on GPT four. So I'm, I'm pretty impressed with it. Switching gears, you know, kind of going back a little bit, thinking of the pandemic, how did the pandemic impact your digital transformation efforts? What changed? What has continued to evolve even through today? You know, I, I think our story is probably similar to a lot of, you know, or most people's, you know, stories that impacted us all, you know, in, in many ways the same way. I, you know, early on, obviously, it was about the, you know, the accelerating shift to digital. You know, we were already along that path, you know, we already knew digital was the future and more and more member interactions were going that way. I mean, this just, you know, kind of, it, it was that it was super accelerated. And so it, it was good because it gave us the, the, you know, the opportunity to really put our back into, you know, what we were doing on the digital side of things. Um, and for good reason. And I think that shift, you know, continues. It's not like, you know, the branches opened back up and everybody, you know, shifted back, you know, away from digital. I think that there's still very much, you know, momentum moving towards, towards that. And, you know, the thing that 
for us, I think was a, you know, a, a really big rallying cry was this notion that as a part of our strategic direction, you know, our speed to innovate really had to accelerate, right? You know, we were always able to, you know, to, to innovate, but generally we were, we were a little sluggish in how, in how we would do it. And we really came to the agreement and the understanding that, look, for, for us to, to be able to compete five years from now, we are going to have to learn to innovate way faster than we, we are today. So that continues to be something that is fueling us to say we need to get better and better and better. It, it, it you know, really pushed us to accelerate our agile transformation. You know, so we've really, as an organization, largely moved from almost entirely waterfall to being, you know, very, very much, you know, agile at this point, including our Salesforce program, which is great. Um, so that's huge. I think the the biggest way that it impacted our members, um, and again, this is not unique to us, but you know, they saw market volatility, they saw you know the the, the stimulus packages, and you know the shifting spending patterns as people were kind of hunkering in at home, deleveraging, um, and then all of a sudden now we're you know we're seeing kind of the pendulum swing back the other way, and we've got inflation and rate hikes, and we're seeing unsecured lending climbing. And, and, and consumer delinquency, you know, starting to climb as well. So I think that it's, it's been a real roller coaster ride, you know, not only for us as a business and in the credit union, but for our members in general. So um, it's, 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 been, it's been quite the ride. It continues to be quite the ride. I think regardless, and, and this is my last point on, on this, is that I think the, the pandemic and how it pushed us to shift our view of, you know, where, uh, our investment in data and, and in technology platforms it really pushed us more in that direction. And I think it's really well positioned us to succeed no matter what the future brings. You know, there's a lot of potential futures that are that are coming our way. But I'm a really strong believer that, you know, those investments in data and technology platforms have really positioned us to no matter what comes we have the ability to keep up. We have the ability to to evolve in however way our members need in order for us to continue to be relevant to them. Um, so that's to me, that's the biggest income outcome of the the pandemic is really shifting us toward that mindset. It's an amazing point. I yeah, I'm curious. I don't know if this is more because I guess a lot of the customer behavior, if you will, that that you guys are examining you know, that digital footprint, it's more like B2C than B2B, right? And and so I don't know if this is more of a B2B thing, but has customer behavior, sort of online digital footprint, customer behavior changed as a result of the pandemic? So one thing that's, I think, unique about BCU is that, you know, because we're not a primarily community credit union, um, you know, we've always... You know, we have we have a lot of members. More than half of our members don't have access to a branch, right? If they wanted it, they didn't. They don't have access one way or the other. So, by our very nature, we always had to be, you know, kind of uh, digital digital first in a way. And um, but I think that's only accelerated if if we take a look, Dane, today at our um, interactions. And I don't know the exact number, but I want to say it's some, it's super high. It's like ninety seven or ninety eight percent of all interactions happen through. Uh, digital channels, with the majority of that happening through, you know, our mobile um, uh, solutions, our, our mobile app in, in particular. So, you know, I think that was largely the case before, but it's absolutely accelerated even more that way. And I think that our, the, the the legacy 
thinking in our organization, you know, we have a tendency to think about branch and call center first, you know, and then we adapt it to digital. And I think when people talk about digital first, they're really saying, no, you solve for the digital solution first. Mm-hmm. And then you figure out how to, you know, kind of make that to, 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 you know, alter that so that it's more palatable for those other channels. Um, so that's, that's really forced us towards thinking, you know, truly digital first and saying, you know, we can't alter, you know, branch and call center experiences for digital. It's got to be the other way around. Great points, John. Thinking big picture, what are your top priorities where you're focusing right now? Well, I think right now, um, you know, so we started out really focusing on sales first, you know, um, with Salesforce. I think it's it's a natural fit for Salesforce. We had the greatest need there and, uh, you know, the revenue that's generated in, in, in sales really, you know, made it far more palatable from an investment standpoint. <laughs> it, it definitely helps pay for it, right? Exactly. It's just like, okay, let's get that first, you know, before, you know, so that people go along with it. So, but we, so we, we, we've done that and we continue to evolve that, but really we've kind of, we've shifted in the last year and a half or so to really focusing heavily on, on service. So uh, going all the way back to the beginning of our conversation, when I mentioned about being in the service organization and, you know, being, you know, I like to call it the alt tab department, you know, cause they're constantly <laughs> switching, uh, you know, between <laughs> different platforms and copying and pasting and all the, t- all the while trying to keep up a, a a pleasant conversation with the member they have on the phone. So um, we are really right now shifting service into, into Salesforce in a big way. And that's a big, that's a big effort because it's not just, you know, putting a script in Salesforce. Um, You know, there's all the back end pieces too. It's just like, instead of saying, you know, notate it here and then go to this system and perform the transaction and then go to this system and, and, you know, submit something else. It's like, no, it's all part of one fluid flow that happens in one system. And it happens to be the same system where you're you're also answering your phone and taking your notes and all that kind of thing. So it's a, it's a big shift and it's taking it's taken us a good long while, but I think it's it's really worth it. Um, so that's that's shifting service. We are we're really trying to double down when we look at our MPS feedback. One of the things that we hear a lot from our members is you could do a lot better in terms of follow up, you know. I, I, I always get great service when I talk to BCU, but sometimes I wonder where I am in the process. So we're, we're really trying to standardize how we're communicating with members in a more, you know, kind of automated fashion so that as we, you know, whether it's a, a loan application or whether it's a, you know, service request, we're trying to very intentionally increase the transparency to the members of where are we at with this? Don't leave them hanging, right? So that's another piece. And then third, and this is going back to, to sales and where we are and kind of maturing the sales piece. Um, and I, you guys will have to help me here because I don't even know Salesforce changes names of products all the time. I don't even oh remember. Oh gosh, what I, I, I could have a bingo card. <laughs> I have no idea. Okay. <laughs> well, there's a tool that, that we started using called High Velocity Sales inside of Salesforce. Awesome tool. Yes, yeah, super powerful tool, and um, I, I think they've changed the name. I don't know what it's called anymore because we still call it high velocity sales at BCU. But um, this is something that really ha- it allows our um, you know sales it, it allows our sales management teams to build cadences for all the different kind of sales journeys that that have to 
occur. And by doing that, they're able to say in this sort of a situation where you, let's say, have a, you know, a, a member contacting us because they're thinking about purchasing a car from, you know, a third party. It's like, okay, cool. Well, we have a cadence built for that that says, here's the information that they are most likely going to want to understand and know about. Here's certain, you know, things that we're going to need in, in the process. Um, you know, here's the, the follow-up kind of cadence that we want to have in terms of, you know, after this step, don't wait more than a day to call them back. So it really allows us to take all the sales best practices that, you know, we're always just, you know, the, the best sales reps had the best sales practices and they would try and, you know, share some of that or not, you know, with their colleagues to help them. This kind of like says, no, we're actually going to, we're going to configure the cadence with those best practices in mind. And what, what's really awesome about this, and then I'll get off off it, but um, it allows the the business teams themselves to manage and administer kind of their own cadences. So as they want to play with it and see if, well, what if we moved from a one day follow up to a two day follow up? Well, we actually have better results. They can do these kind of alterations to their cadences. And now they are really have the tools that they need in order to try and to optimize uh, sales practices. So that's been getting, um, you know, rave reviews from our, our sales teams. We're just trying to keep up with all the requests we're getting to, to turn that on. That's phenomenal. And if, if I know you, you're probably looking at all the analytics behind it and just seeing how you know, each of these iterations is moving the needle one way or the other. Uh, I think that's fantastic. I love high velocity sales as a product. And I, I love the idea of giving that empowerment, you know, closer to the people that kind of see it every day and, and really kind of reducing that cycle time that it takes to really go through and, and test different things. Uh, yeah. That's that's phenomenal. Um, one, one last question before we wrap up, uh, just to kind of take a step back and like big picture. I know you spent a lot of time not just looking at BCU, but thinking about the broader credit union industry. You know, what do you think uh, the future looks like for credit unions and, and generally for financial institutions around digital transformation? You know, what's what's on the horizon? Well, you know, I, I've spent my entire career in credit unions, you know, so I'm very, you know, biased and partial to, you know, kind of the, you know, the philosophy of our movement and the, the true, you know, truly purposeful you know, intent of, of the entire, you know, system. And, you know, so I, I think that, you know, that is going to continue to, to resonate with, uh, you know, with, you know, consumers. And I think we're going to continue to have that as something that is going to, going to push us forward where I think it's going to be hard is that, you know, like we talked about before member expectations around experiences, digital experiences in particular, they're only going to accelerate, right? So, um, you know, they, they, they have access to, you know, more, you know, data-driven tools and we have a, you know, the, the population is aging, you know, you have, we used to talk about millennials as those kids that were coming up. Millennials are like, you know, <laughs> I think they're in their thirties and forties, right? So it's like, these are, you know, they're, they're at the, the, the center of, of where we're trying to be. And they have even, you know, even, you know, deeper expectations in terms of what we're able to deliver digitally. So I think the role of, of data and intelligence, it's going to continue to grow um, and it's going to further separate winners and losers. And I think folks that take a more traditional approach to things um, without leveraging data and technology, I think they're going to start to really lag behind. 
Um, this, I think, plus you know the increasing regulatory burdens that are that are here too. I think it are, is going to drive credit unions to con continue to consolidate. You know, because there's just going to be a, a, a you know kind of a minimum scale in order for folks to really sink their teeth into and, and understand and leverage data and, and uh, technology to make those experiences possible that our members absolutely want. So I, I think uh, you know you know really key technology investments um, and then also building key technology partnerships. The, the combination of those two things is going to be absolutely critical for, um, you know, FIs to, to compete in the future. You know, John, I, hitting it kind of squarely, what advice do you have for other CDOs, other chief data officers or credit union leaders generally who are guiding their organizations through rapid change? So, you know, I think that credit unions really have to understand clearly what their strategic vision is. And they have to also understand, regardless of where the world is going, um, you know, how will their strategic vision position them to, to, to sustain success regardless of, you know, what's coming, right? And, and I think a big part of that is understanding the role of data and technology are going to play in your, in your strategic vision. And I think that we have to, to, we tend to look at technology and data as, you know, an IT thing, like we talked about before, we really need to start, you know, building technical competency within all the different business units. It needs to become an enterprise uh, competency in order for us to really drive it forward at the speed that our members expect us to. And then lastly, I think that, um, you know, as we're building these, these visions and these roadmaps, um, we, we also have to be really careful not to trip over ourselves, right? We need to dream big. We need to expect big things out of our companies and what we're able to deliver to our members. Um, but we also have to make sure that we set our expectations and our road mapping properly so that we execute small. So dream big, but, you know, execute small, put one foot in front of the other. And if you don't do that, um, you, you will end up tripping, tripping over yourself. So that's it. Have a great vision. Make sure you understand how data and technology fit into that vision um, and then plan to make sure that you have a roadmap that is realistic, that is going to get you there. I love the long-term vision, you know, the big picture, the the magic that you want to create for your members broken down into those really digestible, executable steps. I think that's a, a formula for success. John, I appreciate it. This has been an awesome conversation. Thank you so much for your time, uh, especially on a, on a Friday where I'm sure you've got a lot of things going on. Um, as we wrap up, uh, tell me if our listeners want to reach out to you, what's the best way for them to find you? Um, you know, LinkedIn is, is the best way to, to get in touch with me. So uh, if you don't mind, I'm, you know, you can you can share my my LinkedIn uh, uh, profile on the um, on the pod. I'm more than happy to, to connect. In fact, I like connecting with people because I always learn learn something with everybody I talk to. Well, fantastic. We'll definitely include your LinkedIn profile on the show notes. And thanks again for your time, John. Hope we get to talk again soon. Yep. You guys, this was, this was a blast. Thanks. Appreciate it. And we're back with Quick Takes. Dane, first thing I wanted to bring up this week was a big rebrand announcement from Twitter, or should I guess I say now X, 
the bird is dead. Elon Musk has directed uh, users to not call them tweets anymore. They're called X's. What are your takes? What, what do you think about this rebrand? I know you give a lot of thought to marketing and branding. Well, interesting question. I, I feel like it's really risky. I'm not going to try and pretend that I understand what's going on in Elon's head right now. In the past, he's been brilliant, you know, from a product standpoint. Uh, and maybe this is all going to land in an amazing place. But right now, it just looks really, really messy. I'm 100% with you on that. I'm a pretty big fan of Scott Galloway, and I liked his take. He said, if I were to take a company and give them $10 billion in 10 years and tell them to create a brand that is well-known as Twitter and the bird icon, 50-50 odds if they're going to be able to do it. And I think Twitter just took $10 billion or more of brand equity and value and just threw it out in the street. Um, I mean, it's definitely getting some headlines. You know, we're talking about it. Everybody's talking about it. I also think it was just really sloppy. I don't know. I've stopped. I've I've mentioned on the podcast before. I've stopped using Twitter, you know, frequently uh, years ago. I still have the app. I'll glance at it every once in a while. I've got some group chats on Twitter that I keep up with. But I'm not a frequent user. But when the rebrand was announced, I had to go poke around. And it's really sloppy. Like, you know, there's some places where, you see the X, but you see the bird logo right right next to it or right below it. The app is still completely branded as Twitter with the bird icon and everything. So I'm, I'm also maybe not a surprise, but just a really sloppy rollout. You know, have you, have you been on the platform much since the rebrand? I, I really haven't. I'm sometimes surprised when I'm reading through my News Plus app and I get directed toward you know, something on Twitter, I keep Mm -hmm. thinking, when is that going to change? Some of the things that I came across here, uh, so I guess like X has warned advertisers that beginning August the 7th, brand accounts will lose their verification if they haven't spent at least $1,000 on ads in the previous 30 days or $6,000 in the previous 180 days. I think it's, you know, more of this playing around with verification. You know, the, the blue check mark, the verification check mark used to mean something. Now it's, you know, for sale. And and this is just another indication that, you know, we're we're not concerned with whether or not this is a trustworthy actor, this is, you know, somebody who is who they represent they are. We really only care that they've paid, you know, twelve bucks a month in the case of individuals or that they've bought, you know, thousands of dollars of ads if they're an advertiser. Yeah, all, all the things not to do from a change management standpoint. You know, it's an interesting case study, I think, in that regard. Yeah, it's switching gears and teeing up four-day work week. So longer, the I guess the longer people have worked in new and efficient ways, the more their work week shrank over time. And after six months, workers said that they had less burnout, improved health, more job satisfaction, had cut their average work time by about four hours to 34 hours a week. But I guess really what they're driving at is that, you know, with with time and practice, we seem to be getting really good at the four-day work week. What's your take? 
four day work week is something that I continue to to like the sound of. Uh, I don't know that I am a four day work week person. I currently work, uh, you know, six or seven days a week. But I am very much a flexible person. One of the things that I've liked the most about, you know, transitioning from, you know, being on the industry side to consulting for the last 10 years is, you know, the flexibility to to blend, you know, my work day with, with personal stuff and, you know, deal mm. with, you know, family things or, or medical things or appointments or just, you know, heck if it's, you know, I don't like to go to Costco on Saturdays. So, you know, I can go to Costco at... 11 o'clock on a Tuesday. And I just know that I'm, I'm going to pick that work up somewhere else. So wh- whatever it takes to, I think, give people more flexibility, especially if they're, you know, not in a, in a naturally flexible role, I'm a hundred percent poor. Absolutely. I, bringing up some, some great points. I, I think the one that you, that you make about just having flexibility, I think that's the point that resonates with me the most. Um, I, I'm not sure I'm a four day work week person either, but I do want flexibility. That's important. So love it. Yeah, totally. Speaking of, of getting additional flexibility, you know, AI once again to the rescue, <laughs> I say that a little bit tug in cheek. Uh, I don't know if you paid a lot of attention to uh, earnings uh, this last week. Uh, Microsoft and Google's parent Alphabet both uh, had interesting uh, earnings reports. They're both making a ton of money, uh, no surprise there, and they are turning around and pouring all of that money back into AI. Uh, Alphabet uh, actually announced they spent just under seven billion dollars in capex for the current quarter. It was about a billion less than what Wall Street was expecting, but the CFO came back around and said, "Look, we're going to keep increasing capex every quarter for the rest of this year and into next year." And then she specifically said. It's for AI. It's to invest more in the AI opportunity. And then right on the heels of that, Microsoft, not to be outdone, they had an $8.9 billion record CapEx uh, year over year, 30% jump. And they have also committed to continue to increase that amount every quarter through the new fiscal year. Uh, And once again, for AI investments specifically. So a lot of money going into AI. Uh, I know you and I talk about these topics quite a bit. You've been playing around a lot with Bing lately. You know, what are your thoughts? Is this money well spent? Clearly, it is. You know, I, I I guess Microsoft has like similar ideas to Salesforce, sort of providing like almost almost like these anchor points throughout their products, where you know people can land a like a transformer, some generative AI, an LLM, you know, something that's bringing value. But I think differently, I think Microsoft is um, wanting to, uh, you know, also provide the products themselves, the generative AI products themselves. So it's not as much of a, you know, bring your own model to the party approach as what we're seeing from Salesforce. But I think it, Definitely makes a lot of sense. I'm curious to see what Google's doing. Like I hear they're they're really pushing hard in the direction of Bard and Chatbot. You know, I think in their minds, their you know their their chatbots are going to be everywhere, doing lots of helpful things. You know, across sales, service, and just a number of different areas. I'm with you. I mean, clearly Microsoft's making much more 
public moves, much more quick product availability. I know that I hear and continue to hear from, you know, both public reporting and just people I know in the industry that Google has a lot of advanced AI that it's been keeping under wraps. And I'm, I'm with you. I am eager to see how they're going to put that in the search engine. Uh, we're both uh, Google Doc users, and I definitely read some of the Microsoft product enhancements, you know, where they're baking more generative AI into Word and Excel and PowerPoint. And I'm like, when when are we going to start to see some of those features built into the to the Google workflows, whether it's from Google's models or, you know, more of a bring your own model approach. But I, I think Microsoft's been firing on all cylinders. You know, they had the early partnership that continues with OpenAI. They recently just announced that, uh, you know, tight partnership with, with Meta uh, on the Llama 2 model that they just put out. So they're definitely investing. Definitely seems um, like it. So we were just talking about Salesforce and AI. I guess they've announced general availability and pricing for GPT-powered features across sales and service. So in particular, if you have purchased Unlimited Edition, you're eligible to use GPT-powered capabilities now. And then Salesforce GPT is included in Sales Cloud Einstein at $50 per user per month, including a limited number of Einstein GPT credits. Have you been following this story, Fred? Yeah, I've been following it really uh, with a lot of anticipation. You know, obviously a lot of the clients I talked to in the ecosystem, you know, very eager, you know, if they weren't in the beta to understand you know, what the use cases are, how this is going to work, you know, how much is it going to cost them? Uh, you know, I think this was a, you know, a bit of a good news, bad news, right? Like good news. This is not a completely new, completely different license type that you have to buy, you know, bad news. Um, if you don't have those and you want a GPT, yeah, you've got something to put on your Salesforce shopping list. And then further bad news. And I've not been able to discover a lot of data on what those limits are you know, they're capping the GPT usage. And, you know, obviously I think that makes some sense. You know, you don't want, you know, something that's very computationally heavy. You don't want to give it all you can eat and, and make it be a not um, profitable type of product, but not knowing what those limits are, not knowing what the expansion packs cost at this point. I think that's going to add um, a lot of uncertainty. Absolutely. You know, th this might, this might be a stretch, but I'm going to go there. You know, I, I think in the past, you know, you think about products like Gong, for example, the ability for us to sort of model ourselves after top performers, which certainly points to content usage as well. I wonder if they're going to bake in some, you know, some sort of capability where, you know, because there is limited use. You do want to make sure that you're not, you know, pressing too hard just because of computational requirements, et cetera. But will we do a better job of kind of modeling after, you know, what's working really well content wise, et cetera? And if so, what does that look like? I think that there's there's definitely a lot of power in in that when I've seen some of the stuff that's been announced for marketing cloud and certainly, you know, where I can see AI playing a stronger role in something like a data cloud where you're able to really get much more responsive feedback on different offers and different messages that you're putting in front of people and letting, 
you know, the, the volume basically, you know, give you better, better messages and double down on what's responding. I think there's a lot, a lot of power uh, yet to come in, on those fronts. So definitely something to keep an eye out for as well. For sure. Just, you know, while we're on the topic of Salesforce and AI, uh, Salesforce continues to make additional news on the AI front. Uh, last week, Mark Benioff uh, did an interview with the Associated Press. Uh, I think the top line headline that I kept seeing uh, over and over again was the quote that AI is not just the most important technology of our lifetime, but probably the most important technology in any lifetime. So I'm just going to ask, you know, top line, what's your reaction? You agree? Disagree? It's a bold statement. It could be true. I mean, airplanes, cars, running water, electricity, going head to head with some pretty notable, you know, technologies and accomplishments over the years. But there could be truth to that. I mean, what's your opinion? Yeah, I'm I'm a little bit with you. There's there's a lot of contenders for, you know, the most important technology. I think that AI is obviously built on the backs of lots of other enabling technologies, right? The wheel, the microprocessor, you know, internet, uh, you know, there's there's so many uh, things that that are required to bring us to AI to now say that AI is, is going to somehow transcend all of those and be the most important, you know, uh, of all time, in, including whatever we can imagine in the future, you know, stable quantum computing, um, you know, stable fission, you know, electric generation, you know, who knows what might come. I'm a, I'm a Star Trek guy, warp travel, like who knows what's coming in the next 100 years, 200 years, 500 years. I think it's a little hyperbolic. But I do think it was said to, to get attention, right? Like, this is not just another small shift. This is not ruling out, you know, business intelligence dashboards. This is not ruling out, you know, uh, a faster way to, to, to calculate, you know, a particular piece of data. This is a technology that is literally going to touch um, everyone. You know, workers, obviously, it's going to touch, I think, most, if not all, you know, jobs, certainly a lot of the, the white collar jobs that have been, you know, less impacted by technology than some of the blue collar jobs have been. I think it's going to touch all of us as consumers. And certainly one of the things that I am concerned about just as an individual, uh, a consumer, uh, a citizen in this country is the pervasiveness of AI and like the trustworthiness of, you know, how much computer generated content is going to be out there. And a, a, a little bit of a tongue-in-cheek reaction, but I don't know if you caught the commercial that Salesforce released this week with Matt McConaughey. It's a short 15-minute, I think it's only on, on the streamers and on social media. I haven't seen it on TV yet, but it's Matt McConaughey, you know, in a computer-generated Wild West town, and he just kind of looks up and says, so if AI is the Wild West, well, who's the sheriff around here? And, you know, no solutions, no answers. It, it fades to a Salesforce logo where it says, you know, ask more of AI. But I think that's that's the message that I think he was trying to get across, which is this is going to have a lot of impact on everyone. And we need to make sure that there's precautions, safeguards in place. I don't know that I'm the best person to say what those are, but like I think about things like, you know, watermarking AI images or 
you know, having disclosure that, you know, a piece of content was uh, computer generated or making sure that when somebody puts computer generated content out on a platform, there's some level of moderation to make sure that it's not spreading intentionally or unintentionally misinformation. So I think there's a lot of things to sort out. And I think it's a big job ahead for, for all of us. Yeah, definitely. Definitely going to be an interesting story to follow. I mean, you know, I think about using AI to sort of double down, enhance my productivity. I love it for that use case. But when I definitely when I start to think about it in terms of, you know, misinformation, news stories, I mean, there's plenty of that kind of false flag stuff happening, I think, around the world. And it's just going to get tougher and tougher to to figure out which way's up at times. So I, I like where they're going with the message. And I think it's key. I think it's really important. We've got to get our arms around that piece. Yeah, sooner rather than later. I saw Oppenheimer this last weekend. I don't know if you have had a chance to see it yet or not, but uh, great movie. Highly recommend it. And a lot of lessons to be learned there. One of which is, you know, with with any new technology, with any great new power, there's a lot of ethical questions to work out. There's a lot of things that you need to to contend with around how are you going to use it? How are you going to, you know, make sure that it's it's providing more good for society than than evil? Uh, and I think that you know part of what made the movie such a compelling story is looking at how various players, Oppenheimer and others in that environment, you know, kind of wrestled with it. And, and we can have a debate about whether or not things turned out you know, great or not. Um, but but we're, we're here sitting with our own Oppenheimer moment. Like we're all sitting here uh, playing our parts in the evolution of this new technology. And, and I think we need to be ready to make sure that, that we're guiding it in a way that it provides more good to society than not. Awesome point, Fred. Couldn't couldn't agree more. Good movie, and I think it's easy to draw those comparisons. That makes a lot of sense. Awesome. Well, Dane, another great episode. I appreciate you joining again today for the quick takes, and we'll talk again soon. Have a great day. Well, everyone, we hope you enjoyed episode eight of Banking on Disruption. Don't forget, you can find show notes and a full transcript of the show on our website bankingondisruption.com. If you liked what you heard today, please subscribe to the podcast and leave us a review. New episodes drop every other Thursday, so we'll see you in two weeks. And in the meantime, don't forget to follow us on LinkedIn and Instagram at at bankingondisruption. Until next time, this is Fred Cavenna wishing you success in your digital pursuits. Mm-hmm.